at the military school where he prepped for Princeton and played a very good end on the football team, no one had made him race conscious. No one had ever made him feel he was a Jew and hence any different from anybody else until he went to Princeton. He was a nice boy, a friendly boy, and very shy. And it made him bitter. He took it out in boxing, and he came out of Princeton with painful self-consciousness and the flattened nose and was married by the first girl who was nice to him. He was married five years, had three children, lost most of the $50,000 his father left him, the balance of the estate having gone to his mother, hardened into a rather unattractive mold under domestic unhappiness with a rich wife. And just when he had made up his mind to leave his wife, she left him and went off with a miniature painter. As he had been thinking for months about leaving his wife and had not done it because it would be too cruel to deprive her of himself, her departure was a very healthful shock. The divorce was arranged, and Robert Cohn went out to the coast. In California, he fell among literary people, and, as he still had a little of the 50,000 left, in a short time he was backing a review of the arts. The review commenced publication in Carmel, California, and finished in Provincetown, Massachusetts. By that time, Cohn, who had been regarded purely as an angel and whose name had appeared on the editorial page merely as a member of the advisory board, had become the sole editor. It was his money, and he discovered he liked the authority of editing. He was sorry when the magazine became too expensive, and he had to give it up. By that time, though, he had other things to worry about. He had been taken in hand by a lady who hoped to rise with the magazine. She was very forceful and Cohn never had a chance of not being taken in hand. Also, he was sure that he loved her. When this lady saw that the magazine was not going to rise, she became a little disgusted with Cohn and decided that she might as well get what there was to get while there was still something available, so she urged that they go to Europe, where Cohn could write. They came to Europe, where the lady had been educated, and stayed three years. During these three years, the first spent in travel, the last two in Paris, Robert Cohn had two friends, Braddocks and myself. Braddocks was his literary friend. I was his tennis friend. The lady who had him, her name was Frances, found toward the end of the second year that her looks were going and her attitude toward Robert changed from one of careless possession and exploitation to the absolute determination that he should marry her. During this time, Robert's mother had settled an allowance on him about $300 a month. During two years and a half, I do not believe that Robert Cohen looked at another woman. He was fairly happy, except that, like many people living in Europe, he would rather have been in America and he had discovered writing. He wrote a novel, and it was not really such a bad novel as the critics later called it, although it was a very poor novel. He read many books, 
played bridge, played tennis, and boxed at a local gymnasium. I first became aware of his lady's attitude toward him one night after the three of us had dined together. We had dined at Lavenue's, and afterward went to the Café de Versailles for coffee. We had several fiends after the coffee, and I said I must be going. Cohen had been talking about the two of us going off somewhere on a weekend trip. He wanted to get out of town and get in a good walk. I suggested we fly to Strasbourg and walk up to Saint-Odile, or somewhere or other in Alsace. I know a girl in Strasbourg who can show us the town, I said. Somebody kicked me under the table. I thought it was accidental and went on. She's been there two years and knows everything there is to know about the town. She's a swell girl. I was kicked again under the table and looking saw Frances, Robert's lady, her chin lifting and her face hardening. Hell, I said, why go to Strasbourg? We could go up to Bruges or to the Ardennes. Cohen looked relieved. I was not kicked again. I said good night and went out. Cohen said he wanted to buy a paper and would walk to the corner with me. For God's sake, he said, why did you say that about that girl in Strasbourg for? Didn't you see Francis? No, why should I? If I know an American girl that lives in Strasbourg, what the hell is it to Francis? It doesn't make any difference. Any girl, I couldn't go. That would be all. Don't be silly. You don't know Francis, any girl at all. Didn't you see the way she looked? Oh, well, I said, let's go to Saint-Lys. Don't get sore. I'm not sore. Saint-Lys is a good place, and we can stay at the Grand Cerf and take a hike in the woods and come home. Good, that will be fine. Well, I'll see you tomorrow at the courts, I said. Good night, Jake, he said, and started back to the cafe. You forgot to get your paper, I said. That's so. He walked with me up to the kiosk at the corner. You are not sore, are you, Jake? He turned with the paper in his hand. No, why should I be? See you at tennis, he said. I watched him walk back to the cafe, holding his paper. I rather liked him, and evidently she led him quite a life. Chapter 2 that winter, Robert Cohn went over to America with his novel, and it was accepted by a fairly good publisher. His going made an awful row, I heard, and I think that was where Francis lost him, because several women were nice to him in New York, and when he came back he was quite changed. He was more enthusiastic about America than ever, and he was not so simple, and he was not so nice. The publishers had praised his novel pretty highly, and it rather went to his head. Then several women had put themselves out to be nice to him, and his horizons had all shifted. For four years his horizon had been absolutely limited to his wife. For three years, or almost three years, he had never seen beyond Francis. I am sure he had never been in love in his life. He had married on the rebound, from the rotten time he had in college— and Francis took him on the rebound from his discovery that he had not been everything to his first wife. He was not in love yet, but he realized that he was an attractive quantity to women, and that the fact of a woman caring for him and wanting to live with him was not simply a divine miracle. 
This changed him so that he was not so pleasant to have around. Also, playing for higher stakes than he could afford in some rather steep bridge games with his New York connections, he had held cards and won several hundred dollars. It made him rather vain of his bridge game, and he talked several times of how a man could always make a living at bridge if he were ever forced to. Then there was another thing. He had been reading W. H. Hudson. That sounds like an innocent occupation, but Cohn had read and reread The Purple Land. The Purple Land is a very sinister book if read too late in life. It recounts splendid imaginary amorous adventures of a perfect English gentleman in an intensely romantic land, the scenery of which is very well described. For a man to take it at thirty-four as a guidebook to what life holds is about as safe as it would be for a man of the same age to enter Wall Street, direct from a French convent, equipped with a complete set of the more practical Alger books. Cohen, I believe, took every word of the Purple Land as literally as though it had been an R.G. Dunn report. You understand me, he made some reservations, but on the whole, the book to him was sound. It was all that was needed to set him off. I did not realize the extent to which it had set him off until one day he came into my office. Hello, Robert, I said. Did you come in to cheer me up? Would you like to go to South America, Jake, he asked. No. Why not? I don't know. I never wanted to go. Too expensive. You can see all the South Americans you want in Paris anyway. They're not the real South Americans.